Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of a series of conversations called Faith Forums. Here we discuss some of the big issues facing our world and explore how our faith compels us to take action. You'll hear from faith leaders and activists on the front lines. Welcome to the conversation. DeRay McKesson has said one, one in three people killed by a stranger in the U.S. One in three is killed by a police officer. Uh, one in every 11 homicides in California is uh, a police officer. And we're going to hear from two folks that are former police officers, you know, but there's a lot of folks that say few bad apples. And uh, I don't know if y'all saw this, Reverend Gale or David or Chris Rock did a, you know, a series where he said some jobs, you just don't have room for bad apples. Like, you know, United Airways can't say most of our pilots are good, but there's a few bad ones. You know? <laughs> so and, and I, I want to say this, you know, growing up in East Tennessee, our environment shapes so much of our theology and of our uh, how we look at the world. And for me, growing up in t- Tennessee, I used to want to be a police officer. You know, when I was a kid, all the stories I heard about police officers were heroic stories, um, and they were true stories. My perspective began to shift when I saw a whole nother side of this after living in North Philadelphia, where I've been for the last 25 years, and we've seen so many things. I can remember early on uh, a mentally ill homeless man uh, that was killed by police officers. And they said that he was armed. And it later came out that he had a folding chair. He had a folding chair and they considered it a weapon as they shot and killed him. And even personally, as we were involved, some of the scariest things that we've seen over 25 years in North Philadelphia have involved police that are abusing their power. Um, I think in, in one case, there was a young man that was minor crime was being arrested and the police officers uh, in the middle of snow in the winter, they took off one of his shoes and they threw it over a fence, laughing that when he got out of jail, uh, he would have to walk home with one shoe off in the snow. And it's things like that that have created, uh, as we're going to hear tonight, a lot of distrust and a lot of pain and a lot of trauma in our communities. So there's nobody that I would rather have this conversation with than the three people that you're going to hear from tonight. And I'm going to, I don't want to say a whole lot about them because I want them to, to share as much from, from themselves as they can. But I want to first introduce uh, Lionel Latouche, who is working with EJUSA uh, Trauma to Trust. And he's an incredible person with, you know, that's been working with his feet on the ground in communities uh, around the country. So welcome, brother. Say a little bit more about yourself and, and then I'll uh, introduce the other two friends tonight. Brother Shane, thank you for having me today. Again, my name is Lionel Latouche. I am the Senior Project Manager for Trauma to Trust out of Equal Justice USA, uh, an organization that works at the intersection of criminal justice, uh, racial justice, and and understanding the need for uh, change in our society um, on many different levels, whether that's a death penalty or trauma-informed policing or how trauma shows up in our communities, right? It's more about, our our focus is about um, seeing uh, our nation, seeing our society, seeing interactions move from those that harm to those that heal. As uh, part of Trauma to Trust, I'm and I uh, lead the Trauma to Trust program, which brings police officers and community members together in the same room using trauma as a vehicle for uh, transformation and healing, building a common bridge of uh, how trauma has shown up in our lives, in the lives of community, as well as the lives of officers, and moving and shifting that perspective from what is, what's wrong with you to what's happened to you, uh, and hopefully uh, planting the seeds for transformation and healing within our community 
based out in Newark, New Jersey. I'm also a psychotherapist uh, with the Institute of Personal Growth, really working and specializing, I think, uh, more so with and work with black and brown, uh, black, and, black and brown folks, specifically black and brown men dealing with issues of racial trauma, of racial identity, and just the whole gamut of mental health issues that can show up or mental health challenges that we face. I'm also a minister out of the Spring Valley Church of the Nazarene, and it is a great blessing and honor to be here. I feel like everything that I've done in life kind of culminates to this moment and why we're here today. And it's a blessing and an honor. I should add it as well. I didn't add this. This work is really important to me. My family lost someone to police violence about five years ago, uh, this past April, five years ago. And it is the reason why I'm in this work. It is the reason why I'm in, in healing work and in, in, in healing movement. Uh, so mm. thank you for having me today. Absolutely, man. And and thanks for sharing that because it's a reminder too for all of us listening. This is not just a debate, right? Like, like this is not just, we're going to throw around Bible verses or we're going <laughs> to, you know, uh, th- this is lives. This is people's stories. And so that, thank you for sharing that. And I think also reminding us that there's so much at stake, you know, as we're talking about this. I want to introduce, uh, we, we got three ministers on. I'm going to count myself as a half minister because I, I dropped out of seminary just for the record. <laughs> but uh, some serious uh, faith happening tonight. And I first met David Cooper here. Reverend David and I were on a retreat together. I was the one preaching that time uh, on as your church went on retreat. And you shared with me your story and it moved me and you've written some stuff for us. I think at red letter Christians, but one of the things I remember you saying is that after, you know, a police officer shot, they wear the blackout badges, you know, to honor their lives and that we, we should have every police officer should be doing that whenever one of these police shootings takes place to, to grieve the, the, the lives that, that are being lost and, and to do something about it. And you, I, I hadn't heard many police officers talking like that or former police officers talking like that. You're a pastor now, but uh, say a little bit more about your story and kind of how you arrived at where you're at now. And we're going to have each of you share a little bit more about how you think about, you know, abolition and defunding or reform. We can get into all that. But first, just introduce yourself, David. Thanks for being here. Well, as my name is David Cooper. And um, Lord, I'm getting tired. <laughs> I'm getting tired of all these shootings. And I, the whole country is getting weary right now. And I just, uh, we've got to do something. I've, um, I was a police officer for 33 years. I started as a, as a youngster out of the Marine Corps. And uh, back in the, back in the 60s, President Johnson put together a commission on uh, law enforcement enforcement and criminal justice. And one of the things that the task force on policing said is that police officers ought to have college degrees. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to go back to college. And uh, I was in the Minneapolis Police Department at that time, of all places, right, to look back at this. So I think I and a number of my colleagues caught, caught a vision about what police ought to be. And even though it's trite now at this uh, serve and protect um, you see on the side of police cars, that, that I'm sorry to say that that's it. That's the essence. Your job is to serve and to protect. And there's someone that's got lost, you know, we just we, we've lost our way. Um, American policing has been in the wilderness. You know, there is the we're the children of Israel out there. We're in the wilderness and we don't know where we're going. And uh, we've got all these uh, wild Hittite tribes around us. And all we want to do is just protect ourselves. And we're also so scared all the time. And we think people hate us. And then we get this attitude. And the whole thing it boils down is how do we how do we help police heal from this attitude which says 
essentially, we're the police and you're not. We can do anything to you we want to and there's nothing you can do about it. And you saw that when Derek Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes. I will never forget that picture for the rest of my life. Sunglasses in his pocket, hand, hand in his pocket kneeling around and saying, we're just doing our job. This is the way we do it. He wasn't embarrassed about what he was doing, and neither was anyone else. No one else was shocked there, except for the citizens that were watching that, who were horrified. Mm -hmm. And thank God, some young woman took that cell phone out and took, took that picture, because I'll tell you, without the picture, Derek Chauvin would not be in jail today. Because yeah. what would have happened is the usual excuses. The drugs in the system. It was a hysterical response. Uh, he's a dangerous person. We, we were afraid of him and, and we had to use this to, just to hold him down. And when that's on black and white and testimony in court instead of a video and the police officers all come and say the same story and the citizens have a different story, but they say, well, wait a second, young lady, uh, weren't you arrested for theft one time? Oh, oh uh, I, 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 th I, think, I think I've arrested your mother before. And then they challenge the veracity of the witnesses there. And, and it's, a, it's a song and dance. That's got to change. And um, so I retired a number of years ago, but, uh, you know, went off to seminary and uh, went on to, to follow Jesus. But um, I really think the way to follow Jesus is to improve our police. Hmm. I, I think we'd be doing them all the benefit if they could just loosen things up a little bit. Hmm. Just say, people don't hate you, but think about what you're doing. Hmm. And I think the one, the one thing that has really, uh, really um, incensed me more than hell Anything else, in 2014, when we saw Michael Brown laying out there in the street in the midday with blood running down the gutter and no one covering his body, no one showing any respect for a dead young person there. Hmm. And I thought, well, maybe. And then we had uh, the journalists from The Guardian and Washington Post started getting gathered together. They said, my gosh, police are reporting they kill about three or 400 people a year. And my gosh, it's a thousand. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It was a thousand the year after and the year after that. And the year after that, the year after that, it was a thousand last year. That hasn't changed. So what, I, what I've sort of been preaching to police is there's a, there's a, there's a question out there. There's, there's a question that's being asked by Black America. And the question is, what are you going to do to stop killing us? And that's the question. And I I, I wish there were young leaders that would be standing up and policing today that would be able to say, we have a plan. Mm. It, it, it can be done. But instead, we get a lockstep in and say, well, we can't improve things because, because well, it's a, we, we just have to worry out there. And the reason all those other countries have such low killing rates is that they believe, like the European Union does, every country that belongs to the European Union must sign a pledge that says, our police will use deadly force only when absolutely necessary absolute necessity. In our, I hate to summarize Graham V. Connor, but it's kind of something that says, mm. if I fear, I can shoot. Mm -hmm. and I, that's too low a step. Mm -hmm. Thank you, brother. Thank so you. I know Sister Gail has her story on that. We, we, both, we both have been police leaders, and, uh, and here we are. Here, and here we are, are under the under yeah. the mantle we've been called. Woo, I'm telling you, yeah, I'm not trying to imply anything in the uh, the police to Reverend uh, status, but we do have a, two similar stories. And I first met Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart when I, well, I'd heard all about you, and and I think the first time we teamed up though was for the we had a revival alongside the Republican convention, and for the record, we had a revival alongside the Democrat convention <laughs> as well, but. You brought the fire and you sh shared so much of your story. So it's an honor to have you here tonight. And uh, uh, you, 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 um, 
share a little bit, but I think, you know, what I remember about when you shared before is that it felt like hearing you that you can imagine a future without armed police and without the, the and, and that, you know, kind of thinking through what is our history here and how does it relate to our sweet Lord Jesus? So uh, share whatever you want, Reverend Gail, but thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I just, you know, I just want to be like Lionel when I grow up. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where I'm going to be, who I'm going to be when I grow up. And, 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 and David, you know, when, when I was in college on the police department, I had to read David, you know, I didn't realize later on he'd become an Episcopal priest, but he was the chief at Madison, Wisconsin, and, you know, he, everything we read was about what he was doing in policing. So he was the example. And then after I retired, I mean, long time after I retired, um, in fact, it was after um, Michael Brown was killed, I received a, a grant uh, from the Episcopal uh, Evangelism Society to put on conferences so police and the community come together. And so I, I'm looking for somebody. I said, oh, and you know how you just kind of Google and I go like, oh, this is the David Cooper I had to read about and he's also an Episcopal priest. Let me email him <laughs> to see if he can be part of, of, this, of this conference. And so, yeah, I, I joined policing in 1972, June 19th, Juneteenth, 1972, and I retired Juneteenth, 1992. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> All they got was 20 years. But in, in that time, I, I came to recognize that there was a, a problem in policing, not even, not all, you know, even inside the police department. There was a problem outside with the community, and there was a problem inside in terms of discrimination and racism against black and brown people within the department. And so then you kind of walk this thin line and as a black person in policing, you walk an even thinner line because here you are, you're expected to serve and protect, but you take off your uniform and your badge and all of a sudden you might find yourself on the wrong side trying to find something to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm one of you. And so we have this, this conundrum. What do we really do about policing? Because policing is necessary. Some type of law enforcement is necessary because people just don't want to play by the rules. But when those rules apply to some and don't apply to others, that is the problem. We've had policing since this country well, uh, let me put it out. Since this country was stolen, okay? Let's just put it out there. That was the first big crime. It, it was stolen, right? So we've had always had some form of policing, but as we got into like the 1800s, late 1700s, 1800s, then we had what we would call modern policing because in the South, it was to prevent slave insurrections, right? Slave rebellions, uh, because it was a crime to steal yourself away to freedom. That was against the law. And in fact, in, in, in Virginia, there were like 82 crimes that for a black person would result in death penalty. And out of the 82, there were only two, if committed by a white person, would result in the death penalty. So you have this, this discrepancy because somehow you have to justify why you are enslaving a certain person group of people, right? So they're criminal, they're lazy, they're distrustful, they steal. 
all of this comes as a part of the law. So you now you need a system to enforce these laws against this rebellious group of people who have the nerve, the audacity to steal themselves away to freedom. And so then in the North, you had modern policing and it was against immigrants because, you know, yeah, you have folks coming over from Europe and that was okay until darker skinned folks came over from Europe. And so now you need to police them because they're not the right type of people. Then you have the industrial system coming up, right? Uh, and people are saying, wait a minute, I don't want to work in a sweatshop. You need to pay me what I'm worth. So as, as people were starting to unionize, police departments in the North were formed to break strikes. And so it's never been about serving and protecting all people. It's been about serving and protecting a certain group of people who are in control, who have the power to have their values codified and then enforced. As we say, you know, the policing in America is about keeping white space white because policing is different in communities of color than it is in white communities. Black folks are presumed guilty until it proven innocent. And sometimes that is too late. Um, we walk around, my interest is that we really walk around, black and brown people walk around with a warrant of execution hanging over our heads that can be acted upon at any moment by an agent of the state, just by walking out of our homes. It is there. My skin is a weapon. People are afraid of my skin. My skin marks me as criminal as violent, as dangerous. You know, I, I did a training program where I showed the, the video when Dylan Roof was arrested. Now, Dylan Roof um, from Mother Emanuel in South Carolina, right? The police know he's armed, he's dangerous, he has murdered nine people. The police stop his car. They get out of the car, they walk up to him, they have their guns drawn. But the person who goes to get him out of the car, this armed and dangerous person, holsters his weapon and opens the door to get him out. That would not happen with a black person. We look at the insurrection January 6th last year, um, this year, um, at the Capitol. If that had been black and brown people, there would have been body bags so high we would not have been able to count them. And so... Because people like me walk around with this warrant of death over their heads, I don't want the system reformed. I want it abolished and then put in place that will get that warrant off my head. Ooh. Mm. So we're going we're gonna to dig deep. Y'all are getting a history lesson tonight, not just a sermon. We're going to get it all. Uh, but Lina, I want to come back to you because before we get into, I really want us to get concrete about some, you know, uh, real handholds of things that we can identify that would uh, be either reforms or reallocating money, re just dreaming big in a little bit. But right now, what you're doing is so powerful is you're going, hey, this is what we've got right now. You know, this is what we're working with. Uh, and people are still getting killed. Folks are still getting traumatized. So talk a little bit about your work, because I think it's so helpful in um, communities similar to the neighborhood, you know, in Kensington, where we go, I don't even know where to start. I mean, like there's so many layers of historic harm and distrust. It's hard to know 
how to even begin to uh, reimagine our neighborhood. So tell us a little bit more about your work because you've been you've been doing this. I, I, sometimes I think of it like the truth and reconciliation work in Rwanda and everything. Right. Let's tell the truth first, because if we can't do that, we can't imagine a better future. And so um, take it, brother. So. I want to I want to echo a lot of uh, Reverend Gale's sentiments. I was back there. Uh, you didn't see it on my face, uh, but I was screaming in affirmation and and in, and and in agreement with a lot of what she was saying. Um, I, I and I want to acknowledge what you said, Shane. Right um, there is. I would say that there is a vision of what uh, what policing can look like, or what what it can be, what it should be, or what it shouldn't be. And yet we're forced to deal with the reality of what things are right now, right? Uh, so uh, Trauma to Trust, a program that was designed in 2015 and really started to get off the ground in 2016, really uh, based out of Newark, like I said, Newark, New Jersey, uh, had the opportunity to um, sit down with community members, sit down with people that were being impacted, right? People that were having the most, um, um, uh, the most, active exchanges and interaction or, or, or harmful or severe interactions, I should say, with, with police in the neighborhood, right? And uh, these folks were talked to. These folks were brought to the table. What's going on here, right? What, tell, me, tell me about the things that are happening. Tell me about the things that you are observing. Tell me about the things that you are experiencing. And from there, there was this ability to gather the information, gather the driving points, specifically in the locale of Newark, to say these are the things that are impacting uh, police and community relationships. These are the things that are happening. Newark has a unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, a, a long history of, of racial oppression. I mean, the Newark riots of 1967. Newark was under a consent decree at the beginning of the 21st century. So there's a lot of oppression that is carried, right, and that have impacted uh, the, the citizens, the black and the brown citizens of North. So gaining from gaining those stories and understanding that you're able to say these are the pinpoints, right? This is what the community is saying and elevating the voice of a people that have been marginalized for quite so long, right, for for so, so long. And in then and in, in that phase, uh, in that space, then you move over to the police department. Finding folks in the police department, folks in command, because one of us talked about it, right? The folks that are empowered to codify, right? And act out things, right? Um, Finding those folks with power to be able to have them become uh, invested in the the needs and in the well-being of those community members. Understanding and having them be stakeholders within the police department, right? That they they can champion and and understand and be empathic towards the experience of those that are being um, um, uh, oppressed. And from there, we were able to uh, understand trauma and with a trauma-informed lens, really create a training, uh, but a collaborative experiential training that allows for officers to sit in a space, allows for community members to sit in a space. And we talk about the the the, the psychological, emotional uh, impacts of trauma. A lot of times people think trauma and you think, and even in law enforcement, when law enforcement walks in, they say, I thought this was about medical trauma, like a gunshot wound or some sort of injury. And when we start to break down that physiological, excuse me, that psychological trauma, that emotional or, 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 or mental trauma that folks carry, it opens up a 
first off, a very uncomfortable place for officers, because I think both of these officers will tell you, you are trained not to feel and tap into your feelings, you're trained to respond. And if you tap into your feelings and be human for a second, that could be the second that, as you're taught, can lead to life or death. So you have to shut that off. We know that if you're shutting that off, not once, not twice, but consistently over a matter of time, that becomes a mode of operation, a way of thinking. And you shut off, when you shut off your own humanity, you're unable to see the humanities in, in, in other people. So when, when officers come face to face with understanding, okay, this thing called, wait, what? I'm, I'm traumatized going out into the field. And are you telling me my lack of sleep or my overeating or my, my mood or these health problems that I've been having are connected to trauma due to my occupation? And then on the flip end, we're able to highlight the trauma of black and brown people, but not just black and brown people. We talk about the experience of black and brown, uh, black and black and brown folks. We talk about the experience of the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ community, which have also experienced levels of oppression do, uh, at the hands of, uh, of the institution of policing. We talk about undocumented communities, which for a big one, especially with the last uh, administration that was in view, there was a big element of traumatization that folks carried because of the fear of being undocumented or what it would mean for their loved ones. We talk about the indigenous uh, uh, community that are here uh, in, in America and what it was like for them and what they've experienced and are still experiencing as a result of, of uh, not only policing, but just American imperialism and, and, uh, and how America just wiped out an entire people, a people that were here before us, right? Um, and then we also get the chance to talk about, and this is a big one, the fact that what you observe as a traumatic response, excuse me, what you observe as bad behavior, oftentimes is a, is a traumatic response and even deeper than that has become a mode of survival for the person that you are condemning. Mm. If you find someone to be overaggressive, it may not be that they're overaggressive. It may be due to the fact that they've had negative experiences that have caused them to have this over aggressive response because they feel the need to protect themselves. And when you're able to bridge the fact that, as my sister just said, that there are years, generations, generations of folks that have been traumatized and understand that from an even genetic level, that the impacts, both psychological and physiological impacts of trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. It's not just this person has bad behavior. There is something ingrained in this person's personhood, whether it be physiological, Logical, spiritual, emotional, or psychological that is impacting the way that they see you. So it's not that they're a bad person or what's wrong with you. It's what has happened to you. And when we're able to shift the perspective of what is wrong with you to what's, what's wrong with you is condemnation. What has happened to you is empathy, right? When we're able to lend a hand out to someone and extend a hand, no matter the situation, even if you got to do your job as an officer, one of the things that we tell officers when you do your job is you can still be an empathic, kind person and still do your job. Still do your job. If they were able to buy Dylan Roof, what was it, Burger King, on the way home from wherever it was at? You are able to offer your person before they get, are the handcuffs too tight? It's hot in this trooper. You want me to roll down the window? You want me to turn on the air conditioning? Did you get a glass of water, right? Or offer options when you are in, in, uh, interfacing with people that are facing traumatic situations in the community, right? Not going in there acting like you are the one in charge, but instead seeing the humanity of someone else who has been oppressed, been marginalized, and has conditions that you can't see just by what you're looking at with their eyes. Mm. 
And, mm. and, and then we get the opportunity at that point. One of the beauties of trauma to trust, and we're talking about what happens in the training space, right? In the training space, we get the opportunity to, to in, envision what a trauma-informed city, collective of people, how you respond in an incident of trauma. And Newark is such a model for that right now, right? Uh, if you don't know, Newark has dedicated um, a portion of their police budget to the Office of Violence and created an Office of Violence Prevention. That is an office of alternatives to policing. And there are groups and organizations on the ground in Newark that are dedicated to alternatives to, pol to policing and seeing the wellness and establishing wellness in the community. There's this misconception, right? That wellness is the absence of violence. That's not the truth. And that comes from my good brother, Keila Shirose, right? That, that it is not the absence of violence, but it is actually the presence of wellness. And there are so many aspects of wellness that are encompassed in someone's personhood, spiritual, emotional, physical, psychological, sexual, all these things create wellness. So, what are, and if we have a communal response towards someone's wellness, now there's a community of folks that are able to intervene when there's an incident, when people are in need, when there's a possibility that uh, an incident of violence or harm is looking at, uh, looking at the possibility of retaliation. What does it look like when a brother or a sister from the block or from the neighborhood steps in and says, listen, you don't have to do this, or I see you're in need. Let me give you access to resources in our community. And now it's not the police that needs to be called. Mm. It's the community. It's your brother and sister down the block that you can call on, that clergy person, that organization, that worker, that activist, that the boots on the ground that can come and support the work. Because police will tell you, we are not trained to be mental health workers. We are not trained to get involved in domestic violence. We are not trained to as, as homeless advocates. We are not trained to be babysitters. We are not trained as in so many different things. And yet the onus of community wellness has fallen on, on officers in a way that the system was not designed to do. In conjunction to forget about, so not even forget about, in addition to the racial and systemic and historical challenges about the institution of policing that we see currently, the current institution is not designed to handle the gravity of some of society's worst ills. Hmm. So allow for those that want to and that can to do so. And that's where it's incumbent upon those who have power in leadership to dedicate the resources, to dedicate the finances, to dedicate the funding, to create the policies and practices that empower these groups to be able to intervene so police don't have to get involved and we don't have to worry about a gun being drawn or a bullet being shot towards black and brown people. That's right. That's right. Woo! Getting some psychology tonight too. Uh, uh, do it. Let's do it. Just, just in case y'all missed it. Bless uh, you. Bless you. Bless you. Lionel's work is ejusa.org, Equal Justice USA, which is doing all kinds of cool stuff. We work together for alternatives to the death penalty and mass incarceration, but specifically that work from trauma to trust uh, that he heads up. Um, I want to go to both y'all, David and, and Reverend Gail. Um, I mean, you can respond to Lionel if you want to. I mean, there was so much there. But I want us to talk a little bit about, you know, as we, we look at our communities, the word trauma is not extreme, right? I know kids in our neighborhood that literally when they see a police officer, they begin to shake, right? Because of their experiences. And at one point, the police officers and clergy in our neighborhood decided to have 
a, a gathering of young people with the police to, but you know, I don't think they knew what they were, you know, they were opening up a whole can of worms because they asked, these are 10 year old kids. And they opened the conversation, the police officers by saying, what are some of the things that police officers do for you? And these 10 year old kids said, they knock down our door. They scare me. They take my daddy. They yell at us, right? And they're just talking as children. This is what they've seen and experienced. So what you're going to hear tonight, what you're hearing tonight is we all agree that we have a crisis on our hands. And two folks here have spent, you know, cumulatively 53 years. You still look, you're young, you're young, but you, you, spent, <laughs> you gave a lot of your life to, to law enforcement. So I, I would love to hear from each of you, you know, what are, what are some of the starting points, like the, 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 the no-brainers, the things that we've got to do right now to address the crisis? And we'll start with you, David, and then uh, go to Reverend Gail. <laughs> Well, first of all, compared to the rest of the world, we're not we're not spending enough time training our police, and we're we're allowing you know non evidence based training things like the twenty twenty one foot rule, which um, says essentially that uh, you see a person in front of you, they get within twenty twenty one feet, you better do something because they can stab and kill you before you can stop them. That was taught in academies again and again. No one ever checked it out to see if it was true or not. So we see encounter after encounter, generally a young black man walking down the street with a knife in his hand, police behind them saying, drop the knife, drop the knife. He turns around, doesn't make a step towards them, but he's within 21 feet, he's dead. So there's there's some some real things that can be done about training and about raising the standard. Now, I've tried to argue that police can raise the standard of deadly force, just like in the 70s when we raised the standard on deadly force in most of our states, in Wisconsin and many others said that police can use deadly force to stop any fleeing felon. Mm. So that means kids that dump cars and ran away, burglars, turns out shooting a lot of kids said, no, that's not a good idea. The pushback was, well, chief, our, our state allows us to, to do this. I said, I realize that. But if you want to work here, you're not going to do that anymore. So you're, you can only use deadly force to shoot a fleeing, dangerous, imminently dangerous person. And then things change. And then a few years later in, uh, what is it, um, uh, Garner versus Tennessee, the Supreme Court decision, uh, affirmed that, said, please, no, no, please, you can't use deadly force to stop just somebody who's running away from a nonviolent crime. Why can't that be done today with the standard of deadly force? I, I, I just don't understand this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've argued that, and somehow it just doesn't work. Now, the kind of thing that, that Lionel was just talking about here, and I'll just tell you about a, about a little sad story here. About three or four years ago, a couple of years, I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, teaching um, police who were going for four-year degrees. And um, so one semester, uh, spring semester, uh, the professor that usually taught uh, community relations was going to go on leave or something. And so the department head said, uh, well, David, would you like to teach a police community relations course? I said, oh, I'd love to, that'd be really good. So I looked through the materials and said, wait a second, you know, this is not gonna work. So I said, look at even even these Northern Wisconsin cops here, they're, they're gonna be running into a diverse society. So it isn't, it isn't just that they don't have to understand the society which they operate, they do. So my premise was, if you're going to be a police officer in America today, you gotta understand the history. So I started out with James Baldwin, I started out with Dr. King, I started out with Malcolm X, and guess what happened? 
I, I had a revolution. They, they they signed a petition against me. They said this man does not know what he's talking about. He's he's old school. He he, he doesn't get it. And I said, my goodness, you people are going to within a few few weeks are going to be out in the street with a gun, and and you don't understand race in America. Mm. And that was before critical race theory and everything. But that's absolutely it. I mean, that, it, and the other argument is. Police, if you look at the nature of police work in urban areas, they are dealing with people of color. That, that's, their, that's their business cohort, and they don't understand them. And I learned that back years and years ago in Minneapolis after Dr. Lou, um, Dr. King got killed in 1968. I was a cop on the street. The next day, I went up to my captain and I said, we got to start a footbeat in the black community. We had, we had one black officer on the, on the Minneapolis Police Department in 19, 19 that was 68. So, so things have, cha have changed a lot. Mm. Um, mm. So I think that was sort of my, my, my coming of age. I, I got to understand that if I worked, worked in communities of color, all, all I had to do was be respectful. Mm. You know, I, I, I didn't have to be super cop. I, I had to treat people with, with equity and kindness. And guess what? They don't like crime in their community. So I got a lot of information. We got a lot of bad guys off the street, you know, and nobody got hurt. Mm. But I think that, you know, the, the, the idea of this critical race theory, I think is so, so essential, but, but we're going to make sure that we don't do it, right? We're going to mm. make sure that we don't understand. So, so white cops get, get by with saying, why don't they get over it? Why, why don't they get over this? The slavery was years ago. And my response is, you realize that their grandma probably had parents who were enslaved. You, you understand how close this was? Mm. And then you mm. say that, forget about it. I don't have to be sensitive to these people. And we got the problem going. Mm. Mm. So I think we've got to reimagine police. Yeah. If we don't reimagine police at the local levels, and we, we've got to sit down together like Lionel's talking about, Police and community, the community has to have the guts to say to the police, what you're doing, we cannot accept anymore. You've, you've got to change. You've got to change. Thanks, David. And it's going to yeah. be a long, hard road. We're going to get a chance to cast a vision here at the end of uh, how, you know, how we imagine the reign of God looking. Uh, but before we get to that, Reverend Gail, I really want to hear your thoughts on this because I I know you've, you, I've heard you say a little bit, and you know, just for folks that haven't studied this, I mean, a lot of times a third, it's usually about a third of our city budgets are going towards policing. So when people are talking about defunding police, it's uh, not just, not everyone's talking about abolition. Some people are just talking about using our resources differently, uh, putting money towards things that can actually restore and revitalize uh, and, and address the root causes of some of the, the pain. So, um, but you know, I, I've heard you, you really uh, challenge some of the ideas that we can just kind of fix this broken system. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Reverend Gail. <laughs> Well, listening to, to, to David and, and, and Lionel, the, the trauma out there, one of the things that we don't ask, and maybe we're afraid to ask in policing, in police training is, why am I a threat? Why am I a threat to you? 
because if you look at, I've been retired almost 30 years. David has been retired longer than I. We came up through a system where racism was blatantly <laughs> policing and, and in society. You know, we weren't that far removed from Jim Crow, but all of us are gone. We're retired. And so the, the chiefs today, the police officers today, they, they were in training pants when David and I were on, on the department. Where are they learning the same attitudes that we experienced 30, 40, 50 years ago? How are they being trained? What is it that they are learning that they are still doing the same things, treating black people the same way as they were treated during Jim Crow? Okay. So when we look at this whole issue of, of reform, we, we, we've been reforming since the 1930s. You know, we're going to professionalize the police. You needed college education. Well, that didn't work. Okay, we have a problem in the black community. So we're going to hire more black police officers. That didn't work. Oh, we got a problem in the Asian community. So we hired Asian officers. That didn't work. Oh, I know what it is now. We're going to hire some women, right? <laughs> that didn't work. Oh, we got a problem in the gay community. So we're going to have a gay... <laughs> Yeah, a gay liaison. We have been reforming, 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 and it does not work because policing does as it was created to do, which is to surveil and control black people. Policing is the most efficient and effective governmental agency we have because it does what it was supposed to to do. You can't reform something that is working perfectly. You have to stop it and then say, what is it that we need? So we need policing for those who don't want to act right, but we're going to take away those um, elements that Lionel was talking about, mental health, domestic violence, all those things that the police are not trained to do and give them to the agencies that were developed to do those things. But you have to make sure that the money goes with the tasks. You cannot take away the money and leave the task with policing. All that does is piss the police off. We don't have any money now. You still want us to do the same thing. And when you take away those tasks that you say that the police are not trained to do, they should not do, those agencies have to be up and running 24-7 because when they now call this agency or the police department transfers this call to this agency, you cannot say, oh, well, they work eight to four and it's midnight. So all of this has to come together at one time. There are parallel tracks that have to be working in order to do what we need to do. And then we really have to ask the police the hard questions. Why are you scared of me? What is it about my skin that scares you? Because yes, to, to be safe, police officers need a certain degree of fear to be safe. But police officers can't be scared. If they're scared, the gun is the first thing they use. You've got all this other stuff around you, but the gun is the first thing you use if you are scared. And if you're scared, we don't need you. We don't need you. And the other thing is that we've got to get a hold of the unions because the unions run police departments. The chiefs don't run the police departments. The unions do. You got the tail wagging the dog. And if the union wants to act up, oh no, you know, we'll go to court to find you're all fired and we'll be in court to see if you get your jobs back. Because mm -hmm. our first allegiance 
is to the community we are supposed to serve. We're not here to provide a job for you. We are here to serve the community. And so we need to get the teeth back into the leadership. And we need to also figure out why people are in positions. I always say, if you want a chief, if you, if you have somebody who wants to be chief because they just want to be chief, you don't need that person as chief. If you get somebody who says, I want to be chief because of the resources that come with this position. And with these resources, I can do this. I can do that. I can help this part of the community. I can do this. That's the person you want. You don't want a person who wants to be chief because yeah. they would sell their mother to stay chief. They would sell their mother. Woo, glory. Oh, Lionel, brother, I'm going to bring you into this because I want you to chime in. Come on. I was following closely the uh, uh, Obama's task force on policing. You know, he did a lot of listening. I thought there were some really good recommendations in that. Some of them were, you know, uh, things like ending qualified immunity. You know, there's things like uh, an emergency social work uh, responders that are trained in de-escalation, that are trained in mental health, that are almost like a new set of first responders. Um, you know, uh, it, there, there were a lot of recommendations um, outside oversight, you know, where pastors and other community leaders and block captains could um, hold police accountable. And you've done a lot of listening. So I'm wondering if, if you, you know, you're not just focusing in on policing, but I'm sure communities are doing creative things and they're addressing the root causes of the, you know, lack of accountability of police. So um, any other, any thoughts you have on this man of like, you know, what we can do to address the current crisis that we're in when it comes to policing? Yeah, I, I think so. As, as I was talking with as I was listening to Reverend Gale and, and, and Reverend David, I really uh, wanted to, th that aspect of, 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 I know we talk about implicit bias all the time, right? And it's one of those things that quite frankly have become a Band-Aid and haven't become the medicine, right? Um, and I think there needs to be a reckoning with folks to allow for themselves to look inwardly, deep inwardly, like deep. And you talked about that chief that wants to be chief. Uh, I'm going to take it. If, if your pastor want to be pastor, right, because he just needs to be a pastor, he probably shouldn't be a pastor because those <laughs> that understand what it means to be called understand the weight of what they're doing. So I think that uh, to put it back on police. Right. If you want to be a police because it's shiny, if you want to be a police because you get the chance to 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 exert yourself, you get the chance to be on top. The motives need to be checked because underneath that, I would tell you. Right. And I'm going to go here, right? Implicit bias is implicit bias in one thing and the preconceived notions that we hold and this and that. But as a, as a believer, right? What's, there's a heart issue. There's a heart issue, right? What's going on deep within my heart? What's going on deep within me that causes me to look at this brother or that brother? Or, and you know what? I'm not going to blame you uh, to a certain extent because we've all been impacted. We've all taken in what society has taught us. We've all been indoctrinated by certain things, good, bad, or indifferent, right? We're in the church. We know that we've been indoctrinated by things, good, bad, and indifferent. So how do we now allow for folks to acknowledge that, right? We talk about, and this is where I want to get to. I think police departments would go a long way if they acknowledged the harm that they have done on communities mm. of color. Like when someone, when you ever go to the mall, well, it's been a long time because of COVID, but you ever go into the mall and you bump into someone, right? Even if it's an accident, both of you should be, hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But there's that sense of like that person ran into me 
Didn't even turn around to check if I was okay. Didn't even acknowledge the harm that was done to me. There isn't, what happens when we acknowledge someone's harm is we say, I see you. Yes. I hear you. I understand you. Mm -hmm. And that allows for a person to become safe. And when someone can uh, uh, finally feel like they can be safe, they feel like they can be themselves. They have the permission to be free. Mm. So, so I think, I think to start that there, that's where those things, I think each, each and every single police department all across the nation, especially those that are serving in underprivileged or black and brown communities or, or, or urban communities should just step up to the plate and acknowledge Mm. we've done some things because of practices and policies, and these are wrong. Let me tell you something about black people. We're going to keep you accountable, but we also going to be like, you know what? Mm. All right, you did it. Okay, mm. you did it. We're going to ask you what's next. Uh-huh. Because you ain't finna say that and then do the same thing all over again tomorrow. But we will turn around and say, okay, that was a great first step. And when you do that and you give us... You give us that little nugget. Perhaps you open the door for partnership. Mm. Perhaps you open the door for us to step in and become a partner alongside you. But you still got to be leading that charge. And I think that each and every single police institution needs to acknowledge the harm and then think about what do I need to do in my specific community to bridge the gap and bring healing. Right. Yes. For, For one community, it may be resources. For another community, it may be we need to wipe the whole slate clean and get rid of every officer and bring a new slate and new leadership in here. For another community, it may be we need to provide mental health services to our officers because we recognize that just to the state of where our community is, they are overworked, they are underpaid, they are stressed out, they're bringing that stress home, they're dealing with COVID, they're dealing with losing partners. We need to support them so that way they can bring their fullest self and bring their human self when they're on the field. Those are just some of what we need to do. I'm reminded of the scripture in in Psalm 82 that says that we need to maintain the right of the oppressed and the destitute. Mm. There needs to be the acknowledgement of your rights have been violated. And if we're going to seek biblical justice, we need to step up, acknowledge that harm and do right and reverse it. We need to repent. If you want me to go there, we're going to go there. We're going to need to repent and we need to uh, we need to provide whatever means necessary to right that wrong, whether that is acknowledgement, rec- uh, whether that is uh, reconciliation or whether that is restitution or, or reparations, whatever that is. Those need to happen in order for there to be healing and for black people to feel black and brown people and those who have been marginalized mm-hmm. to feel heard seen and for trust to come out mm-hmm. the truth will set us free say it again brother truth mm-hmm. will set us free and and, the, and ignoring the truth will keep holding us hostage that's right thank you brother so i want to ask we just got a few minutes left and oh i wish i wish we had another hour but we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> let we're gonna let people go in a minute because i know i know how to get a babysitter i think so we're, we're gonna let you go in a minute but um i i want to because this is a faith forum and all of us on the, right now in this conversation are fueled by our faith it it shapes the way that we think about this and why we have a fire in our bones to do something about the crisis. So I want to ask you, uh, David and Gail, to you know, offer us some, some closing thoughts in where your theology and where your faith takes you, uh, how it allows you to 
uh, imagine, uh, you know, a different America than where we are right now and, you know, how it, it kind of fuels your passion on this. So, David, won't you go first? And, Gail, we're going to come back to you, Lionel, for a prayer in just a minute. So, David, start us out, brother. Yeah, I think my faith is certainly, though, for many years it was sort of under underground. And then, then I had this, this call and off I went. But um, I think what's driven me has been the fact that we are all, all created as one. I mean, I mean, from the very first book of the Bible, you know, the vision of God is that we are to be one. And I think this whole business of, of being able to, like Lionel Stone, be able to to ask for forgiveness and and be able to move forward and to have the the, the healing nature of, of asking for forgiveness. And I have I have argued that another one of my arguments is that American policing has to apologize for, for what we've done and then move forward. And and I think the I think that apology, given sincerely, uh, would be accepted as long as change <laughs> comes about. I think the idea of, of that as as I do as a police officer and to be to the least of those people whom I serve, um, I do it for Jesus himself. And then I think the other thing that drove me is servant leadership, the concept of, of being, being a servant and to be a model. That police officers can be and ought to be models of our democracy, that they ought to model this behavior just as Jesus modeled a way to connect with God and a way to move forward. That's, that, that's how I see it. And I, and it's, it's a powerful image. And um, Gail, I know Thank you, you can add <laughs> to this. Bring, bring us home, Reverend Gail. Yeah. Uh, never tell God what you're not going to do anymore. <laughs> God has a plan. When, when Mike, because I said I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the church now. I'm a preacher now. I don't have to deal with the police and policing. And then Michael Brown was, was murdered. And I was asked to go to Ferguson the year after with a, a pilgrimage of young people. And so it's, I'm, I'm reading the gospel of John because, you know, you got to go back and find something and, and it's amazing how many times you can read something. And then that one time you go back, you say, where has this been? Because if you look at John 18, beginning of the 20th verse, Jesus has been arrested, okay? This, this is a criminal justice issue, right? He's been arrested, been brought before the chief priest. Uh, the chief priest is asking him what he, what, he, what he has been preaching. And he says, you know, ask the people who've heard me. They can tell you. And so depending on, on your version of the Bible, it sometimes it says the palace guard. It sometimes says the palace police. But it says the palace police officer stepped up to Jesus and said, is that how you answer the chief priest and slaps Jesus. And Jesus says, why did you slap me officer? If I have done something wrong, testify to the wrong. But if I have not done anything wrong, officer, why did you hit me? So Jesus for me was first person, first victim that we have of police abuse. And so we are drawn into this because he was a victim of police abuse. So we can't get out of it. That was a court scene. That was his arraignment. And he was abused by the policing system. So you can't get out of it. So that's what keeps me grounded, that the person I follow was the first person that we know of who was a victim of police abuse. Ooh. <laughs> I had to turn my mute on uh, because I was, I was, I didn't want to take away. I, I, I was get, it was getting wild over here. The spirit, oh my, thank mm. you, Reverend Gill. Thank you. All right, we're going to close in prayer in just a minute, y'all. But I want to say a couple of things real quick. Um, and first, 
This is such a powerful conversation. I hope that you will share it. And I hope that you will follow each of these folks' work. Um, David, you, you can find more about him on his, uh, he's got a blog, improvingpolice.blog. He's also written a book. It's a great title, isn't it? Arrested Development, right, David? <laughs> I love it. And Reverend Gail, uh, she's written a great book too, Preaching Black Lives Matter. Mm. So you can find her. And is there a website or are you on socials or anything, Reverend Gail? Oh, I can't figure that out. I don't know. <laughs> well, I create a site and then two days later, I can't go back to it. It's all good. We're going to keep having you on Red Letter Christian. So nowhere else, just keep tuning in here. But um, read her book, uh, Preaching Black Lives Matter. Uh, and Lionel, Reverend Lionel, I'm going to just call you that, man, because you've been, a, you are a reverend and you brought it tonight. Um, Amen. Uh, EJ USA. And you can find Trauma to Trust, uh, the program he's a part of there. Um, just a, on the horizon for us, y'all. Oh, by the way, we're trying to do all this for free. Um, so that money is not an obstacle to someone joining conversations like this tonight. But if you can give, uh, even if you're watching this afterwards, the video, the recording of it, if you can just go drop a few dollars at redletterchristians.org or become a monthly sustainer, we're going to give each of these folks a small gift to show them a little bit of love. Um, but we, we want to be able to give as much as we can to the folks who their lives and their, their story, their faith inspires us like the three folks that you've heard tonight. So go to redletterchristians.org and give what you can so we can keep having conversations like this. Uh, thanks for joining the conversation tonight. And because it is a faith forum, we always believe that prayer is a part of this, that, that it's not just our hands alone, but there is a God uh, that is at work in all of this. And so Lionel's going to preach, uh, he's going to pray us out tonight. Thank you all for listening. And especially if some of this made you uncomfortable, if it's something that you haven't thought about a lot, thank you for leaning in. So brother, send us home. Amen. Father, we, we just thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to have dialogue, Lord, where we can just share truth, Father God, where we can talk about our experiences, Lord, and know that you are the grounding center of it all, Father. Lord, as we have a conversation, as, we, as we've had this conversation of policing looks like, and we've talked about harm, Lord, remind us that, Lord, for those that are brokenhearted, that you are close to the brokenhearted. Father, we, we ask that uh, for those that have been harmed, Lord, that you wrap your arms around them. Lord, we ask for those that are navigating and, and learning, Father God, that you provide them with insight, Father God, and revelation. Lord, we pray for uh, change, Father God. We pray for, um, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that in heaven, we ain't got to worry about none of this, Father. So we ask that you give us the ability, the wisdom, the the biblical, uh, the biblical wisdom, and the uh, and the and the motivation, Father God, to be able to begin uh, to be the tools that allows for heaven's will to be done here on earth. Uh, we uh, pray for those that are uh, listening, Father God, and we thank you for the opportunity to just speak, Lord. And we pray that one person, just one, uh, was impacted uh, by what we talked about today. Be with us as we go. Be with us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Bless y'all. We'll see you soon. Blessings. Blessings.
We hope you've enjoyed this special Faith Forum conversation. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but bringing heaven to earth while we live. Thank you for listening. For more information, check out our website, www.redletterchristians.org, and follow us on social media.